Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Story. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. In thinking about advocacy for the autistic community, I like to think back to those that have helped us get where we are today. That's why I'm thrilled to talk with Dr. Wen Lawson, not only about his advocacy work dating back to the 1990s, but to discuss how his critical work continues today and in the future in helping the autistic community make advancements. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Wen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start out and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Formerly, <laughs> when I was 42 years of age, I'm now 69, close to 70. But of course, autism's always been part of my life. It just wasn't named as such. And, you know, society has expectations that we should do certain things by certain points in our lives, which in many ways can be harmful, I think, to so much of our growth as humans. One area that you were a late bloomer was in in regards to high school. Um, You didn't get your high school diploma until I believe you were 38, and then eventually you went on to get your PhD. I'm so interested. What would be your message to people in terms of thinking about what they want to accomplish in their lives in regards to age? Yeah. In autism, age isn't necessarily following that stereotypical linear straight line, as in association with social understanding and with what we're supposed to do when. So although I completed all the usual milestones, as in walking around the age of a year, I didn't talk until I was closer to five. And when they sent me to school at six, didn't go down very well, so they took me home again, <laughs> kept me back for another year. There's lots of delays in autism. That doesn't mean a cancellation. And so we often arrive at an understanding a little bit later. So it just means that school for me was a very difficult process. Teachers, even my parents, didn't really understand me. So it was just assumed that I was intellectually disabled. It was assumed my IQ was very low. So I was sent to a mainstream school, but kept in the special class in the classroom, where they didn't really expect much from the kids, which is really sad. But as I grew older, my own dreams and thoughts and desires increased, and my reading and time in the library and reading books, and eventually, when we got a television, watching television and beginning to add understandings that just weren't being taught to me. So I'm a self-motivator, if you like. I just have that kind of personality. You say to me, can't do something, I'll show you how I can. So going to school was difficult, delayed. I left school at 15. I went back to school at the age of 32 
and got completed year 11 and 12 at a high enough grade, which shocked everybody to go to university. And then I was, after that degree, I did a degree in social work, and after that one, I did an honours degree, and then I did a PhD. And I found university to be, this is a bit naughty, but it's like a sheltered workshop for it's a place where you can really focus on your interest. And once my interest is piqued or tickled, if you like, if I'm motivated, I achieve an awful lot more. And what we've come to understand is that outside of interest, autistic people are switched off. But once we're interested in something, pursuing that interest, not just as a reward, you know, finish a maths paper and then you, but using the iPad throughout school, if that's where the interest is. Computers have changed my life. I'm also dyslexic and dyspraxic, so ADHD, so those things are kind of cousins to autism, often co-occur, and those things also impacted on my mobility, physical movement, ability to read and write, and those sorts of things slowed everything down. But it didn't impact my motivation, so I'm fortunate, because a lot of young people are, and I'm, I'm thankful for the personality I have, and I'm thankful for it. Eventually, the friends who encouraged me said you can do this. So it's been a bit of a long journey and we shouldn't give up. We should just work with a person's interest and cultivate uh, their gifts and what they can do. Rather than seeing it as an obsession, we should stop. We should work with that person and work with our autism, not against it. Now, I'm really interested in, you said, you know, that you didn't give up and you said based on your personality. Are, are there other things that allowed you to kind of keep pushing forward when other people might not have or definitely wouldn't have uh, pushed forward? Yeah, you know, there's this kind of thing in psychology that talks about a locus of control. So we have a, an understanding. Um, you blame the outside world for things that go wrong. I failed my math test because the math question were not the ones I'd studied for and that kind of thing. Or I failed my maths test because I didn't study hard enough. That's an internal concept. You've got an external or an internal kind of locus of control and I have that control, I have that essence of I am responsible for me and it's up to me to make a difference in my life and I don't expect the world outside to supply that, if you like. I don't blame the outside world or parents or carers or anybody else for things that don't go right. They're human, they make mistakes. There's all sorts of variabilities here, but I push forward and try my utmost to find a way through what it is that's happening for me. I do my own research, but you can't do that as a child very often, although some kids do, and you can't do it if you don't have access to the right technology or the skills. So I, because of being dyspraxic, I can't type with all the fingers on my hand. I can't coordinate that, but I type with one finger. I've just learned to type quite fast. I've had all sorts of accommodations in school and in university for extra time for doing exams and things in a room on my own with an invigilator so that I'm not distracted. I have a lot of sensory stuff. You can tell by my Berlin lenses and my cat that I, I have lots of sensory things and I have to have those accommodated or I'll never learn anything. People have to, well, in theory, people are better off working with us as autistic people and with our autism rather than trying to make us non-autistic and distract us into something that is more the way they think somebody ought to be. That, that doesn't work. 
Now, you know, I had the privilege and definitely honor in, in May of 2020 to interview someone on Autism Stories that you know uh, much better than me. You knew much better than me. Uh, Dinah Murray, um, you, you recently, you know, I want, first I want to say I'm sorry for your loss because I obviously you knew her for a very long time. You were really close. You, re you recently wrote a fantastic tribute about her. And, you know, one of her so many great contributions to the autistic community, along with yourself and Mike Lesser, is in developing the theory of monotropism in the 1990s. What do you see as the importance of the theory of monotropism, especially in the context of what what was thought about the autistic experience previous to the development of the theory of monotropism? Yeah, a completely different thing. Previous understandings or what people thought was a way of understanding autism looked at theories like theory of mind, executive dysfunction, central coherence theory. They're all theories that tried to account for what's happening for autistic people and they're full of holes absolutely full of holes monotropism mono just meaning one or single a bit like una tropism meaning channels just means that our brains are better at working with one thing at a time and better at working with what we're interested in and if our attention is is completely taken up with what we're focused on what we're interested in which might not be a hobby our interests are piqued by all sorts of things, not just things that people think of as hobbies, but it's anything that captures attention is what we focus on, anything that captures attention. If we work with that, that becomes the mode through which we attend to lots of other things. But there's no excess attention, no attention outside of what we're focused on to notice other things. But we can certainly use our mono attention, if you like, to join the dots and work out a whole heap of things that makes sense to us as autistic people. But when we're overwhelmed and people try to talk and have us walking, looking, and lots of other things that we're trying to attend to, you know, that's too, too overwhelming, too much, it closes us down. Because they're not working with our learning style, they're not working with the way our brains are actually attuned. So monotropism is a theory unlike any other, because it totally explains autism in every facet. Even when we look at those cousins I mentioned earlier, it still accounts for the way that our brains work. And it's a theory that makes so much sense to me. And, you know, I think I had asked Dinah this question, but I, I want to ask you as well. Why is it not more, more well known than it is today, you know, 20 plus years later? Dinah and I had many a conversation about this. <laughs> We think, it's, we think it's because it's just too easy. It's just not complicated. It's just, it makes the most sense. But scientifically, to actually run what we call scientific experiments, it's very difficult to do. So there's very little supported scientific evidence along the lines of experimental evidence for monotropism. There's loads of anecdotal evidence, lived experience evidence, as autistic people, we say, wow, yay, finally, we understand. But that isn't seen as, you know, evidence that you can substantiate through an experiment. Having said that, there are a number currently of experiments that are going on that are finding ways to measure 
to look at the result of and give evidence for monotropism. It's kind of a buzzword at the moment in the scientific community. People are really wanting to find ways to explore it. So it's a kind of watch the space because I think it will gain more credibility. But it's sad that our lived experience isn't credibility enough. Hmm. You know, it, it saddens me that people aren't listening to autistic voices and autistic experience. That is changing. Now, one aspect of monotropism is the flow state. How does the flow state relate to monotropism? And how do you see it, the flow state being especially important to the autistic community? Yeah, a flow state is just a kind of continuum, literally a state of flow person gets into where they're focused, where they're taken with what's of interest to them. And that can lead to all sorts of productivity, you know, whether it's somebody that mows the golf course in straight, straight lines and, and is absolutely thoroughly good at their job, taking care of the lawn, and whether it's an engineer, you know, that's a very, the spectrum is very, very, very vast, and it's not a linear spectrum, it's a circular one, so people move in and out of ability within the same day. However, a flow state can take you places literally as it flows through you into what it is you're doing. The, the one issue that we're currently investigating as a, a research project that I'm involved in is catatonia. is a, a state of not being able to move, talk, think. You might be able to think, but you can't convey that. Inertia is a, another word well known to the autistic community. And we think that monotropism has an impact on inertia as well. And if we can uncover the stems or the roots of that, we might be able to enable people to move past it into a flow state of productivity rather than a flow state of dead end, of stopping still. Inertia is often the result we think, we'll find out as we do more of the research, is often the result of overwhelm, too much going on, so your body and everything shuts down, too much demand, shut down, or lack of motivation, shut down. So we'll see how this project, what it uncovers. But flow state can work either way. And mostly in autism, a flow state is working with the person's autism and taking them to places that previously people hadn't even thought of that we could go. I'll give you an example. When I was doing year 12 and I had to do Australian history, I got no interest per se in Australian history, but I did have a massive interest in engines, piston engines particularly. And what I discovered was in 1932, we had a, back then, we had an Australian female pilot who was allowed to wear overalls and pilot clothing and fly a piston engine plane. So I had access through that medium or understanding through piston engines and the plane to economics, fashion, gender roles, a whole heap of things became available to that were happening in the 1930s through that one interest of piston engines so they flowed into these other places and opened up a project that I was enabled to do and got top grade for. What was it about piston engines that excites you so much? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, everything. You get me talking about piston engines. They're beautiful. They just move as long as you keep them greased and, and working well and, and enable this pump action to produce power and, um, and so many things that can happen from a piston engine. Better stop there, so <laughs> I'll get taken away on it. But really, right. really good, yeah. 
Well, getting back to your tribute to Dinah, uh, you mentioned that we have a long way to go until it becomes the norm that the principle of nothing about us, yeah, nothing about us without us is upheld through autism research and autism practice. What are some key areas of research that you would like to see more of a focus on that would truly benefit the autistic community? All research and any research that involves autism should be co-produced. So there should, it should truly be nothing about us without us from start to the idea of the concept that we're going to research to dissemination of refined. So in every area that touches research and autistic lives, from education to housing, to medical stuff, to justice and policing, um, to well-being and education and school, mental health in particular, everything. We should be, and we are beginning to, have autistic researchers at every aspect and involved in those projects. And I've certainly been involved as an autistic autism researcher with other autistic researchers here in Australia. There's about four of us as a team working over the last two years in particular on a number of projects. One area that, you know, that I would love to learn more about in regards to the autistic experience, particularly is in terms of, of aging. Now, in, in 2017, you presented to the UN Na United Nations on this very subject. What was your message to them in terms of autism and aging? Yeah, um, it's a huge, huge thing. Autistic kids grow up and become older people, and services and care is delivered to autistic kids quite well in some places, not in others. But when it comes to older adults, then that care falls through, falls through the holes of that net. So parents and families are our main carers. Parents, families get exhausted, get tired, grow older, die. What's going to happen to their kids is one of the first questions. What's going to happen when I'm not here to take care of him or her? So there has to be services that are autism informed. There has to be specifically autism arranged. It's got to be universal design so that design covers for us all. And that means listening to the autistic voice. You can't have it in any other way. So that's got to account for our sensory issues, got to account for the fact that we often prefer a room on our own so that we can choose to be social if we need to. If you look at aged care nursing homes, for example, their dining rooms are usually full of lots of people, lots of noise, mm -hmm. lots of different smells, totally overwhelming. It does not suit autistic people. Um, so they need to listen. And everybody's individual, everybody's so different. There's no heterogeneity amongst autistic people. So you can't say, well, this is autism, one size fits all, it definitely does not. Some young people and older people love sound and light and very social and gravitate towards other people. Some autistic people, that would be a nightmare for. So planning for our old age is an individual package, but it needs to account for that individual's autism and how that impacts their lives. And in general, mm -hmm. age services, wherever they exist, don't do that. That was in 2017, you know, being in 2021 now, if you were to speak with the United Nations again, what would your message be any different to them? It wouldn't be any different. There'd just be a more urgent pressure 
since that time, we've had the Autism and Aging Think Tank. We met in Canada, lots of people from the States. There was myself and there was a connection over the computer from people in the Netherlands and the UK with wanting to put together a paper that leads to an understanding of older autistic people and, and impacts policy. That's ongoing. We still meet pretty well monthly, at least not everybody that was at the think tank, but there's a small group of us that meet monthly and are trying desperately to impact policymakers. Mm-hmm. And it's got to come from the top, go down as well as bottom up, because it's the powers that be that make the decisions. So we need to impact on them and show financially, economically, it would make a big difference. And it's worth doing. It's sad to use politics in this way, but it has to be done. So there's an ongoing pressure on a number of agencies to bring this to their forefront and focus. And there are a couple of books that have come out since mine and a few papers. Uh, again, I'm working on a project looking at late diagnosed autistic people and looking at age in autism currently. Talking about aging, you are a grandparent now. What strengths of yours as an autistic person do you feel like have helped you in this area of your life? It's very interesting because all of my grandkids are autistic. All of my own kids are autistic. So as a family, we have a community autistic understanding and everybody's very different and there's no pressure. If the grandkids need to eat separately with their noise cancelling headphones on, that's fine. If they need to graze, because two of the girls in particular have an eating disposition, which often goes with autism, that they don't tend to eat big meals. They'll graze through the day, dip in and out. So food is laid around the house. We've got you know, nuts and raisins and chips or crisps, depending on which country you're in, and fruits and other things around the place. And then they're encouraged to, to have a meal, the same kind of meal as the adults, but it might have to be done differently. So the food doesn't touch each other on the plate. You don't have any sauce or gravy covering it. Everything's in separate spots. Those sorts of understandings are very important. If you try and pressure, some of the kids are uh, sort of demand avoidant. If you try and pressure them, it, it increases their avoidance. What we need is negotiation, working with the children, uh, respecting their yeah, autonomy, not lording it over them etc. All of those things that have come out of our joint understanding of autism and of each other and our own personalities. I've definitely seen a lot during meals that the autonomy of autistic people is definitely challenged. Yes, yes. Do you have any suggestions for to parents on how to navigate those meals to give autistic children or teens or adults more autonomy in those situations? Yeah, you need to listen to us. The more a parent, carer or person forces the issue, for some of us, the more dogmatic we'll be that we're not going to eat that. So we try little and often of most things that nothing is beyond a child's ability to eat. For some kids, it's dry spaghetti and white bread or chocolate, they're not good things, but at least that's something. And then you might just add something of the same kind of ilk. It might be white ice cream. It might be a white muffin with berries in. It might be whatever. And, and if they pick the bits out, at least they're playing with it, exploring it. That's a good thing. We don't want food all over the place. I appreciate that. It's horrible to clean it all up. 
but you want them to feel the textures and get familiar with the smells. Not overwhelmed by them, because if they're overwhelmed by a smell that's coming out of the kitchen, then they're not going to go near it. So sometimes eating has to be quite separate mm-hmm. to a kitchen. You know, they dine alone. They might, for one of our little people, they needed the TV on to be able to eat, things like this. It's no big deal. Why make a big deal of that? I'd rather they ate and were happy young people and happy older people than scared of us and intimidated by us and resisting us. That doesn't take anybody anywhere. And being monotropic, their dispositions can be really fixed and firm and they don't easily give way. And if you say to a child, okay, well, if you're not going to do that, you don't get this, they'll say, okay. If you're not going to do that, you don't get your pocket money or you don't get that video game, okay, I won't have it then. You know, they, they, that kind of way of working often doesn't work. If you turn it around and say, hey, for doing that, this is your reward. And that's completely, that's negotiation rather than dictatorship. A, a young person is more likely to comply. As long as the reward is within something they're interested in, considering what being monotropic means. You've had so many great contributions to the autistic community dating back to last century. So I'm just wondering, is there one or two things that you've done that you're maybe most proud of? Or maybe even one or two things that maybe you're not recognized as often for your contributions in that area that really mean a lot to you? That's a hard one. I was always told I couldn't do anything. I wouldn't finish school. I wouldn't. I mean, going to university was way beyond anybody's thought about me. So getting through school and going to uni were major, major things. And then focusing on monotropism as my, that's the theme of my PhD. And I call it SACA, which is single attention and associated cognition in autism. When I met Dinah in 98, I'd already been working on the same theory as her since 93. And to, to meet her and have somebody of the same mind was amazing. And we just we just clicked and have been working together as colleagues ever since. Her direction took her slightly differently to me. Perhaps mine became a little bit more practical, as in how this impacts on people's lives and what we can do for our young people. And I don't think Seika is well known, and I wish it were, because I think that the book that came out of that is called The Passionate Mind. is a very, very positive translation, if you like, of what it means to be monotropic. And I would certainly long hope that people would read something like The Passionate Mind to get a better grasp on. Now, I have to qualify this by saying that until I was 62 years of age, until when was that? Not really good numbers or maths. Seven years, seven years ago or so. So what year was that? So that would have been 2014. Okay. So okay. So since 2013, I lived totally in the female gender. There was a woman with the name of Wendy, and I, I didn't have names for things that were happening to me to do with gender dysphoria at that time. I put everything down to autism or sensory stuff, so I had to separate those things. So those books are written in the name of Wendy Lawson. The publisher has said when she they do a rerun, a reprint, they'll change it to when. But I don't know when that'll be. So if people are looking for that book on Amazon.com, for example, they would have to search under the name of Wendy, W-E-N-D-Y. 
as opposed to my name band, which is Wen, W-E-N-N, yeah. Now, beyond this interview, Wen, if our listeners want to learn more about you, maybe they are just learning about you for the first time, how can they go about um, maybe connecting with you, learning more about all the amazing things you've done? I have a webpage, wenlawson.com. That's all one word, lowercase, no space. And I have a YouTube channel, if they type Wen Lawson YouTube. There's lots of videos and animations that I've created to explain a number of things, all associated with things we've been talking about. So those are the two best places, I reckon. Well, Wen, this was truly a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Thanks so much for making a time for me today. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Doug. Thanks so much to Dr. Lawson for the conversation. To learn more about Wen, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. It was great to hear Wen discuss advocacy on a broader scale, much more so than used to with the coaching with Autism Personal Coach, as we support our clients more in terms of a different type of advocacy, in helping them get their needs met and desires becoming a reality. So if you would be interested in this, um, book a free call with me today. A link can be found in the podcast description of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will discuss about the intersection of being autistic and legally blind. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.